I invite you to take your Bibles. And if you came without one this morning, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. It's on page 1,440 in that Bible. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. As I ponder paragraph after paragraph in this letter, the overwhelming impression I get is that it makes a difference to be a Christian. I remember I was out at Stanford University a few years ago talking with some university students about the impact of Christian hedonism on Stanford chapter in the Bay Area. I remember one of the students, I don't remember which one it was, said he couldn't believe, as he did student ministry, how so many students were able to do add-on Christianity. That is, they, they heard the gospel, that you believe, you trust, you accept, you receive, you died for your sins, you rose again, that gives you eternal life, and they just kind of added on to all their other commitments, and nothing changes. Do their homework the same, use their money the same, pursue their plans after graduation the same, do their leisure the same. And you kind of look and say, hmm, what's this? What's this add-on stuff? This add-on Christianity. They listen to the gospel and say, I can, be- I can believe that. I can believe that, that my sins are forgiven. And that I'm going to heaven? Fine, I'll add that on to my other commitments. And nothing changes. Those university students didn't like that and were teaching a radical gospel that uh, called for more. And sometimes I think people might wonder why that word radical pops out of my mouth as, as often as it does. And the, the reason is real simple. 
I grope for language to describe true Christianity that makes a difference. (laughs) And I use that word to distinguish the real item, the real hot item, from the fake add-on item that is just a kind of, I, I, I can see that, I can believe that, I'll take that. Nothing. So radical means it makes a difference everywhere. It goes to the root. Radix. Radical. Peter is writing about radical Christianity. Let's put it in context now. Verse 9. You people sitting out there right now are an elect nation. You are a people for God's own possession. And you have a destiny and a calling, according to verse 9, which is this. To declare, to make known the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's why you exist. You exist to show God. God is not shown when Christianity makes no difference in a life. Therefore, it isn't Christianity. That's why they were so stirred up, these students. You exist. Christianity exists on you and in you so that the excellencies of an unseen God will be seen. That's why Christianity exists. That's what Christianity is. The making visible of God. Now, last week, we saw how Peter is beginning to take up pockets of challenge in that empire world. And the first pocket of challenge to live like this was the state Nero, the emperor, Pilate, Herod, uh, Antipas, these governors, who are they and how do we, who are a people for God's own possession and aliens and exiles in the world, relate to that kind of people and this whole world system that is run by a state that may not even be Christian at all? That's a mega question. That's a huge question and Peter addressed it and we touched on it. Last week. Now, today you've got another pocket of issues. And he takes one illustration of it, but the the implications of it just go everywhere. And you'll hear those implications without my having to make them this morning. Namely, what if you're a servant and you work and live in a household with a master who may be not only an unbeliever, but totally unreasonable and abusive And you are an alien in exile. You are a people called for God's own possession. You are an elect nation and a holy priesthood. And your job in that household with that unreasonable, abusive master is to show God. What do you do? And here's his answer. Verse 18. Christian servants are submissive. With all respect to their masters. Verse 19. Christian servants bear up under sorrows when they suffer unjustly. 
Verse 20, Christian servants do good, and when they suffer for doing good, they bear the suffering patiently. Verse 23, after the example of Jesus, Christian servants do not return evil for evil. When they are reviled, they do not revile back or threaten. In other words, in order to show God, Christian servants are not defiant, they're not rebellious, they're not insolent. Instead, they're meek, they're submissive, they're compliant, even when the master is unreasonable and they suffer abuse unjustly when they don't deserve it from men. Now, we have to ask, how does that behavior do what verse 9 and verse 11 say are the goal of our behavior? That is, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light and to so live that people will glorify God on the day of visitation. How do we show God? How does that behavior show God? Okay, first part of the answer. That behavior is radically, totally contrary to my fallen human nature. And yours. Fallen human nature hates to give the impression of weakness. Fallen human nature hates to uh, let someone look like they have the advantage over us. Especially when we have the advantage over them. Fallen human nature hates to let false accusations stand against us. Fallen human nature hates it when unreasonable and abusive people seem to get the last say. Everything in us, in our fallenness, cries out and says, but they... When, in fact, the new nature considers that observation irrelevant. But they... That's an irrelevant observation in this text. The right observation is, but God, it is totally contrary to human nature. We hate, we hate to be what he's asking us to be. I standing at the door at the end of the first service, and a, a fellow that I wasn't sure who he was, I didn't recognize him, he took my hand with a very sober face and said, I did not like your sermon. But it was very good for me. Well, that's, that's the way I feel when I read this text. This text does not fit my fallen nature. Now, that's the first part of the answer. How do you show God? If you get victory, if you get triumph over that old nature, of retaliation and revenge and you live in the peace and the freedom of returning good for evil, you show God. 
Because you bear witness that what nature can't do, supernature, something super, something above nature is at work here, if you can do that. Now, there's a second part of the answer. How do you show God in this behavior? And what Peter does in this text is give five connections between this behavior and God to show that God is the key to being freed to live a life of freedom from revenge. Let's just look at these five things briefly. Verse 19 is the first one. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, notice that, conscience towards God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. So when you suffer unjustly and refuse to fight back like for like, it's not because you're weak. Or it's not because you think it through and you say, yeah, but if I do that, he might get the last word and he's stronger than I am and it may not work out the way I'd like. Those kinds of reflections are irrelevant according to this verse. This verse says, for the sake of conscience toward God. This is a Godward consciousness. Without a Godwardness to your heart and mind, when your wife or your husband or your employer or your neighbor rips you off, you hit back with words or with something or with a look. The only rescue from that hair-triggered human fallen reaction is a consciousness towards God. To live our lives in such a way that God has the main bearing on this soul, not those people. That's why I care about God-centeredness. You see how practical God-centeredness is? Without a God-centered consciousness towards God, you will fail. You will respond in anger and in revenge towards everyone who crosses you. Children, your children, your wife, your spouse. Here's the second connection Peter makes. Verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do right and suffer for it. See, now mark that because, I'm going to finish that sentence, but mark that because any of you who have children, and you don't really need to look beyond the mirror, but let's use children for an example. Any of you who have children know that if a hard word is spoken or if they push or if do something and you say, that's not the way, before it gets out of your mouth, they say, but they, but this text is, and if when you do right and suffer for it, it's irrelevant that you've done right. That doesn't justify hitting back. It doesn't justify the harsh word. It doesn't justify storming out of the house. It doesn't justify the ugly look on your face. For if when you do right and suffer for it, you bear it patiently, this finds favor with God. There's the connection. God. Now, translations are a little different here. Literally is, this is a grace with God. This is a grace with God when you do that. Now, I think what it means is this. God looks down 
on your family or your employment or wherever. I think the implications here just go everywhere. God looks down and when you are wronged and in conscience towards God, you draw strength from him and key off of him instead of this horizontal plane and thus endure it patiently, returning good for evil. God looks down, he says, that's a grace. There's power of grace. I love that. I, I find favor there. That's beautiful. That's gracious to me. I like that. And we care about what God feels and thinks toward us. And we want to live in his grace and please him by his grace. So God, again, is the key. Here's the third connection. Verse 21, first half of the verse. For you have been called for this purpose. Now, this purpose is referring to suffering unjustly. That's amazing. Call? Vocation? I mean, maybe a coincidence, maybe a demonic intrusion into normal Christian living, but central calling? Really, Peter? Really, Peter? Have you not read the books about health, wealth, and prosperity, and how when you get it right with God, things get right with you? Haven't you read them, Peter? What's this calling to suffer unjustly? I mean, when you do right, we're talking about living the way you should live and by vocation suffering for it. It's your calling. That's an amazing statement. Our vocation is to suffer when we don't deserve to suffer from men. Here's the fourth connection with God. I, I, I hope I didn't even mention it, but I hope you assume that the calling there is God's calling. OK, that's where I saw God in that phrase. You have been called, namely, by God. OK, fourth one, second half of verse 21. What we're showing is connections between this behavior and God. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So here we have Christ giving the example of not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. When you do that, when with conscience towards God, you find strength of grace to return good for evil, like Jesus, what you show is Jesus. You make Jesus known to people. See, this is the way Jesus was. And those who have seen the Son have seen the Father. So if you want to show God the Father, show God the Son by following his example. And the fifth illustration of this connection between this behavior and God is verse 23. While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he did not threaten. He uttered no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him, that is to God, who judges righteousness. Now, get this. This is so important. This goes right to the heart of where the strength comes from to endure abuse unjustly. There is not just sin inside 
that rebels against that. There is a God-given judicial sentiment that rebels against that. That when wrong is done, it's not just our ego that rises to defend itself, which is bad. But there's also this God-given sense that wrong in the universe shouldn't be. Usually it's all contaminated by our own pride and our own desire not to appear like a sinner. But there is a component of goodness here that says this should not be, this shouldn't be allowed, they shouldn't get away with this. Now what do you do with that? That component of it that's right to feel. Well, the answer is, what did Jesus do as he hung on the cross and every fiber of pain was absolutely and totally unjust? And therefore, his God-given judicial sentiment must have risen into his human brain righteously and said, they're all wrong to do this. They deserve to go to hell for this. And he had the power to call down 12 legions of angels and make a smoke screen out of all of them and pull his hands off the cross and wade through that crowd and get the last word and have the upper hand. And he didn't do any of that. How not? And this text says he took it and he entrusted it to God. See, that word himself in the NASB is not in the original where it says he kept entrusting himself. All it says in the original Greek is he kept entrusting to God. He kept handing over to God. And I think it means himself, his cause, his indignation, his anger, the, 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 the need for judgment in a situation like this. He just kept handing it over to God and he said, Father, into your hands I commit not only my spirit, but I commit justice. In your hands, I let it go, I lay it down. And that's what we have to do again and again and again. You know, one of the best reasons for not taking retaliation into your own hands? We might say that uh, I am good and therefore I do not retaliate. The flip side is also true. I am bad and therefore I dare not. Take retaliation into my hands. Only God is good enough to settle all accounts and we can leave it with him. Now, let me draw to a close with three brief applications. One, does God will the unjust suffering of his people? I've already argued that he does by referring to the word calling it is our calling to suffer unjustly. Here's another verse just to confirm that interpretation from chapter 4, verse 19. Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator. In other words, when your soul is coming down because people are punishing or accusing or uh, killing you, you entrust your soul to a faithful creator and recognize that it is according to the will of God. And he will bring you through, just like the song that the kids sang. I hope you could understand those words. He must love me so much as to put me through this refining fire that I might be 
His, holy, pure. Verse 17 of chapter 3. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. There are many people who have a theology that says he can't will it so. How can God will that I suffer for doing what is right? Just read the Bible. Read the Bible and believe it. God wills that we sometimes suffer for doing what is right. Sometimes God gets glory by miraculously rescuing people from a plight of suffering. More often, God gets glory by graciously and miraculously giving them the grace and faith to endure the suffering. Because that looks more like Jesus and this looks more like the world. I believe it's basically a worldly impulse that produces a theology to get people to escape from suffering. Here's my second application. Where is justice for the wrongdoing of abusive masters? We've hinted at that. It's in two places. Where is justice? If you are patiently enduring unjust treatment, where is justice in the universe? It's in two places. The first, it's in God at the last day. He will settle accounts. And if anybody holds Christians in derision and does not repent of holding Christians in derision and abusing them, at the end they will cry for rocks and mountains to fall upon them rather than face the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 16.6 God will have the last say, not the abusers of the brethren. The other place where justice resides, now mark this, This is a huge observation in one minute. It resides in the hands of the state. Chapter 2, verse 14, last Sunday. Remember that verse? The governors are sent, I believe by God, to punish wrongdoers and to reward those who do right. Which means it is the calling of the state Duly ordained powers that be, ordained of God, God sharing his justice and his authority with them. It is their right to punish slave masters who abuse Christian servants. It is their duty to punish wrongdoers. Therefore, I believe police should pack a gun and carry a billy club, but you shouldn't. Now, this is, this is not easy for, for people to grasp. What I'm saying in that the state has a right to extend its punitive, retaliatory, vengeful, that may not be the best word, but you know what I mean. They have a right to send people to jail. That right does not nullify your vocation to bear abuses unjustly. You don't look at this right of the state and see over here and say, where's my lawyer and where are the police and where are this and I won't stand for this. And that's, that's not the spirit of chapter 2 verses 18. 
And I recognize that as these spheres of my personal meekness and lowliness and willingness to be abused and the state's rights to take up arms on my behalf, as these move, they come close and there are ambiguities as they touch each other. For example, what if you are a policeman, okay, as a Christian? But but don't let those ambiguities as those two spheres touch each other make you a harsh, insolent, retaliating, rights-demanding person. Because while God's glory is seen in a duly ordered state fulfilling its God-given rights... God should be seen there, like he should be seen last night in the lightning. But most people don't see God there. Most people, if they're going to see God, are going to see God in Christians who suffer willingly, patiently, meekly, and do not take advantage of this. My final point of application is to ask the question, what excellencies in God are shown when you live this way? What are you showing about God when you walk in that kind of meekness and that kind of returning good for evil? Let me just mention a few as we close. When you suffer unjustly, you are giving up some very precious things, ease, comfort, safety. And you are saying by that, there is one more precious. Chapter 2, verse 7 To you who believe he is precious. So you are highlighting the excellency of God's superior preciousness. Second, when you live like that and you bear suffering patiently, you're giving up being protected in some senses and being cared for. And so you're calling attention to God's shepherd care in your life. Third, when you live like that, you are giving up the glory of fighting back and winning and feeling really strong and glorious as everybody recognizes that you were right and they were wrong. Now, if you give up that glory, what you're saying is there's a glory coming that I'll wait for. A crown of glory, chapter 5. I'll wait for that glory. I don't need this glory. God, you bring glory in due time. A fourth instance, you're giving up... Maybe a lot of happiness in this one life as you risk living that way. And thus you're calling attention to the faithfulness of God. Hand your soul over to a faithful creator. You're calling attention to his power. You're calling attention to his grace. Our job, brothers and sisters, in life is to so live that the excellencies of God might be seen. Our job is not to get our rights. Here we will in the end. After you have suffered a little while, this is chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself, who called you into his kingdom and glory, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oh, Father in heaven, as as prayer teams are here at the front ready to bear burdens, I pray that you would move in our hearts now. My guess is that what that young man said, I didn't like this message, but I needed it, is the way many of us feel. And I just ask, Lord, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would go to work putting to death the old nature and bringing the Holy Spirit to vibrant, fruit-bearing life 
of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. And that we would be a counter-cultural people that would show your excellencies and not just be part of our rights-demanding culture. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.